Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As part of our FuturePod conversation series, John Sweeney and Real Miller were in conversation in episode 60, where they tackled the question, should the field abandon preferred futures? How can and must the futures field shift in both theory and practice to deal with the core tension between anticipation for the future and anticipation for emergence? It's a very interesting and revealing conversation as each of them wrestled with the felt dilemma of on one hand wanting to argue for futures that they feel are clearly better while simultaneously recognising that the pursuit of normative civilizational projects probably reflect teleological and utopian visions that are based on command and control assumptions and a possible global monoculture. Their dialogue is creative and playful, and yet still grounded in a critical reality. If you haven't listened to it previously, then I do recommend you give it a listen. Welcome back to FuturePod, John and Riel. Good to be here. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Great. Now, FuturePod invited people to contact us with any follow-up questions they had for John and Riel. And in an interesting twist, we were contacted by a previous FuturePod guest, Josh Floyd, who we interviewed way back in episode five. So we decided rather than have me read out Josh's questions for the other two, we thought it made sense to invite Josh back to make it a three-person dialogue. Welcome back to FuturePod, Josh. Can you explain to the listeners and to John and Riel what arose for you listening to their initial dialogue. Thank you, Peter. What particularly struck me in the initial dialogue was that this tension between anticipation for the future and anticipation for emergence was set against what I think Riel and John both described as the monster of our current way of being or our current ways of being. I took this to be something along the lines of what we could call high modernity, including its political economic apparatus of globalised market capitalism and extractive industrial practices. And it occurred to me that if the futures profession is really going to get to grips with the need for the shift that was being that, that Real and John were discussing in that conversation, then it's going to be particularly important to have a really clear and detailed grasp of the nature of our monsters, of the monster of our current way of being. We really need to know something about the details of that. And so it occurred to me to wonder whether my whether what I'd inferred was a sufficient understanding of that or whether there might be more to it, and in particular, whether we might need to look at the deeper origins of that current situation that 
rail had identified as being uh, so toxic. So that might be an adequate place to, to start off. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you, John. This is, uh, this is a very rich conversation. And indeed, uh, since our recordings, uh, these issues have remained at the forefront of many uh, conversations that I've had, and also a, a lot of uh, kind of moments of reflection and, and, and uh, waking up at night and wondering uh, about these issues. One of the ways that I tried to present the topic, I think, Josh, you put quite well, which is the kind of the very f- long foundation related to issues of continuity, repetition, monumentalism, uh, as I've called it, that is something we can find in many, many different human communities over the the past uh, 5,000 years or more, is is a system in which I think, in a way, it it can't simply be reformed. And this is is very uh, much at the heart, I think, of the questions of agency. And therefore, very much of the, at the at the heart of issues related to identity, the who am I and what am I and how do I feel, and therefore very connected to meaning in a daily sense of meaning. And this is a rather stark way of putting it, but everybody understands the the, the proposition that reforming slavery as a system is not on. <laughs> you abolish slavery. You don't reform it. And in the same way, I think that the uh, fetishism of immortality, which in some senses I think was an evolutionary outcome that was particularly comfortable and also effective for the perpetuation of power structures, is something that our species needs to come to grips with. This does not at all answer the question about the profession because it it leaves really wide open the issue of how do you abolish such things and how do you make such transitions happen. And I don't need to to underscore this in today's context. Issues around racism and Black Lives Matter, etc., we understand very clearly that when you abolish slavery by just passing a law and fighting a war, it does not eliminate (laughs) so much of what slavery is about. And so much of what people are still carrying with them in the way of scars, in the way of baggage that is part of their heritage and hence part of something they need to claim, but also something that can weigh very heavily. And so I don't have a particular answer here for either the issue of the profession, let's say the gardener cultivating a new garden. I don't know if that metaphor or that way of thinking makes sense in this context, because I don't, I don't really understand how, as humans, we can even really play a role in what to me seems to be a completely complex, meaning genuinely full of novelty, not deterministic process of the emergence of the world around us. I'll stop with this. It's my suspicion of that role, of that agency, that is in fact, one of, I think, the, the, the most effective mechanisms for me to see things I wouldn't otherwise see. By suspending that agency, by denying this instrumentality, all of a sudden, all sorts of new things start to appear. And other than walking the talk and learning it and talking about wisdom through experience, I don't know, I don't know how to address this from within the old paradigm. And to a certain extent, that's, that's reassuring because it means that it's potentially genuinely outside the existing paradigm. But, you know, it, it doesn't provide an answer either for the transition or what to do endogenously within the existing system. So sorry to be a bit long about that, but I think it's a really, a really crucial question.
And just to maybe maybe dovetail on on Rail's point and to maybe bring it back to the the field, and because I I think Rail's response does fundamentally locate it within the context of a tension that is actually playing out right now. So there's a there's a movement, of course, within uh, you know various organizations to to focus on the question of evaluation, and certainly in the last year we've seen not only an, an explosion of interest in futures and foresight, but of course, uh, as I've, I've tried to put it, the, the age of bad scenarios. So lots of coming back to this, great, how can we get better at doing the things we didn't do before the crises? Because clearly that'll help us now. And and I think that the kinds of pathologies that we're seeing enacted have worked to kind of strengthen this modality, or maybe even tyranny is, is maybe a bit too strong, but maybe more appropriate of this paradigm of strategic foresight. And I think ultimately this, this idea of being able to, as Riel said, not reform, but to move towards abolishing those kinds of pathologies. And, and I, I mentioned the, the movement professionally towards evaluation. What, what has emerged is a, a real clear sense that there is a, there's not only a multiverse, but it's, it's almost like a, a, a multi-planetary battle playing itself out for what is it that we're on about and what is it that we're really trying to do as a, as a field and as a profession. And if it does come back to this idea of being able to, quote, love our monsters, then I think that there is this tension around, as real as, our, as articulated, around agency as a space for love. And, and maybe agency in and of itself is, is not the appropriate frame or lens there. Maybe it needs to come back to love, which allows us to bring it back to a very embodied way of thinking about the kinds of relationality and interrelationality that is inherent to what it is that we do uh, and inherent to the kinds of ways of being and becoming that I think we want to see persist and, and such that the future remains a space to be able to be emergent. Whereas I think part of the initial question, and I think part of what what I liked about you know Josh's, Josh's question is to bring us back to are, are we dealing fundamentally with, let's say, a construct that is that is built in from a, let's say a biological or a civilizational perspective, right? And and how do we begin to confront that? And so I, I I'm really excited to continue to peel back the layers of that and to to come back to this core tension at the heart of what seems to be playing out all around us. The question of agency is a very interesting one, or strikes me as a very interesting one. And it occurs to me that so often agency is taken at face value as the agency to put forward or to advance particular uh, structural responses to the world that we find ourselves in that have built into them ideas about, from my particular perspective, what is going to be better universally or better for, for many. And so I wonder if there's a different sense of agency that it is that we're, we're needing to, that we're trying to get to here that is related to this idea of wisdom that Rael introduced into the conversation. I'd love to pick up on that and, and thank you both for teasing out elements here. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that, that's striking is, is, and I appreciate very much the the collective effort here to find vocabulary and find ways of talking about what we're trying to to get at and and to me that's also indicative of transitional thinking which is that we feel the inadequacy of the existing language and we kind of grasp or seek 
the the liminal, the marginal, the things that are in the the fissures and cracks of of what we see and think around us. If I can take that kind of more emergent perspective on all of this, we can't ask the question better. In fact, that becomes one of the pathology. And we can't think generally either. My well-being and my good life, you know, my next door neighbor might be miserable and maybe richer and have more cars or whatever. I mean, these notions that are reflections of our way of being, which is this kind of statistical, aggregational, command and control, building uh, fortresses and immortality perspective. These things inhabit all of our uh, ways of looking and feeling and being together. So let me just take the example, I guess, of the invention of writing. The invention of writing took place in you know, a number of different parts of the world, and it slowly spread or not uh, around the world. Writing clearly augments a very basic human capability, uh, something that most humans mastered for one reason or another. Again, that's a question of how did evolution generate our, our ability to speak. But we have this command of language, and we augment, but by augmentation, we also narrow and focus this capability, which is the capability of writing. I think that futures thinking, anticipatory systems and futures literacy, as I like to call it, is a similar type of very basic and general characteristic. And it's very difficult to say what it would mean to create a global access. I don't even, you know, not, definitely not a global culture, but global access to understanding anticipation in your own context. Uh, in other words, in that sense, augmenting a very basic human capability. My scenario side says, wow, that would enable all sorts of amazing things to happen. On the other hand, I know very well that despite the fact that when they invented you know, writing in Sumaria or wherever, they weren't thinking of E equals MC squared and the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. But certainly there's a relationship. The enabling capability of writing and passing along knowledge um, makes it possible for us to kill ourselves through the tools that are us. Um, so I'm not, again, saying that this is better or that it's a formula. It seems simply to me to be a step that we can take and that it allows us to understand the world around us better. Other than that, I don't have much to say about the better side. And I also don't really know if I have much to say about the instrumentality. I can't even say what it would mean to have identity in a world in which I'm not thinking about success and status and, and comparing and, and generalizing and instrumentalizing and planning, etc. I mean, it's, it's too distant. It's too impossible for my imagination. To, I mean, and I can't. The words don't even exist. The relationships have never been constructed. So all I can say is that it seems to me to be something that we can do. Uh, and from the point of view of understanding the world, that's something we should do. But other than that, I don't really know. And that, that not knowing sounds to me very much consistent with what I hear within the conception of anticipation for emergence. It seems necessary, almost essential, that that commence from a disposition of not knowing. Or to put it a different way, if it is anticipation for emergence that we need to learn to embody and enact, then it has to start from, from that position of not knowing. Agreed. And just to kind of elaborate on that, I mean, not knowing is, 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 is kind of almost anathema to the current framework, right? So the monster there that, that we're talking about is that fear 
and I, I saw a piece about darkness and the night. Uh, people are afraid of the night because the wolves come. I mean, you know, so this is kind of going back to the, the point about is it, you know, is it genetic? Is it, is it something, you know, so deeply hardwired, as we could say, which is a mechanistic, by the way, metaphor, but I mean, hardwired into our being. Um, and maybe, <laughs> again, I don't know, but I don't think so. I mean, there I'm, I'm ready to take a, a kind of a, a gamble and say that we are our tools. In other words, as we learn to use fire, as we learn to use our ability to read and write, we actually change who we are. And that that is a, a part of the evolutionary process. We are not separate from those things. And so if we can in some way begin to diffuse the, the menace that has, I think, been used, I don't think they consciously constructed it, but it's been used by those in power to sustain the reproduction of the monsters we know being better than the monsters we don't know, and, and therefore continuing with their way of doing things and their position in the power structure or their system of oppression. I think if we can begin to kind of lay the seeds of a different relationship to uncertainty, complexity, emergence, novelty, but also, and this is crucial, and we don't get to this nearly enough, ephemerality. We are so preoccupied with duration, durability, things that you know, will impinge on the future. And it was, it was very, very striking to me, and it just also, I think, indicates the scale of the, of the challenge we face, is that in discussion with Leon Firth a few weeks ago, when 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 I said not knowing and not doing, he said, "Well, what do we do with the waste from uh, you know our atomic energy and our atomic weapons?" And the answer I have is, which is completely inadequate in a way, is that the challenge that I see us dealing with in this conversation is in part how could we put ourselves in a position to never make that kind of choice? Because when you choose to disrespect the future or simply say have the arrogance to impose on the future all of that toxic waste. You're doing something which I think is inherently unethical from the perspective of uh, anticipation for emergence, because you're actually violating the openness of the future and the idea of gifting to the future their right to have an open future, meaning not impose choices on them. But it doesn't deal with at all the question of how do we actually deal with that toxic waste uh, and do the kind of planning that, that a number of us know about from the point of view of setting up warning systems for people 30,000 years from now. But I think that, that even the way we pose the question about planning and, and what will people 30,000 years from now do when they, when they encounter toxic waste is a long-term way of thinking. And there again, I'm I very, very skittish when it comes to this term long-term, because I think, again, it invites us to colonize the future, and it invites us to do things which, in fact, don't embed in our very ethical now a legacy which is not imposing, but creates the sensitivities, the openness, the creation of wisdom through experience that would mean I trust people 30,000 years from now to not be stupid and to be cautious and to be also aware of the stupidity of the past generations. Uh, and as they make their choices then and there with what they know and with what they can do and what they care about and with their values, they'll do, they'll do the right thing. Uh, in the same way that, by, by the way, I mean, this is a kind of maturity model, I definitely trust my children and I expect them to be able to work and, and, and create and be themselves without having to, to abide by something I've imposed on them. Uh, I think that their experiences uh, and their ability to learn is what enables them to be in the here and now and to also act ethically in the present and therefore leave for the future 
the fact that they've done what they consider correct from an anticipatory perspective in the present. And and this is where I think, you know, love as a term or as a framing, again, feels a lot more natural and, and real hearing you talk about that trust and, and that sense of, you know, embodied sort of understanding or at least that that, you know, gravity that 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 feels I, I, I think love feels like a, a really appropriate framing there. And so I guess then the question becomes is what, you know, where are the spaces or how to be able to create and foster and shape the emergence of that? And I think that, again, back to this sort of futures multiverse, right, if if we're able to have communities where that can seem uh, emergent or, you know, you can't artificially <laughs> construct that. So, you know, allowing allowing that to, to be serendipitously produced or created and co-created, I, I think, is really the principles of, of a practice. And I say practice because I, I felt like over the last you know year, a lot of the folks that talking to in the field had that sense of empathy and that rawness of seeing what had emerged and and of course being able to respond to discourse but also that very visceral embodied sense of the crises and and multiple crises and seeing it of course still unfold and so being able to again own that and feel a sense of clarity around self and then being able to position what that means for practice and i think you know what's been interesting in some seeing some of these other conversations play out is is being able to hold that space of love and being able then to communicate and connect uh, with others, maybe. Uh, and and I, I don't know, uh, also feeling with 3L, like if there's, I don't think there's a formula there. I, I think it, it seriously, uh, it becomes more of a recipe, if anything, to be able to understand how to be able to enact and embody and to bring that to the practice. And I jump in just because I've been listening. It's a fascinating conversation. I'm just going to offer these and then step away again. I think it's an important point. I think Riel teased it out from Josh's point around agency. And so the preface that are we talking about a new form of agency that allows for emergence rather than an agency that narrows it or constrains it? And the second one that struck me just listening particularly to what John was saying around love is and I believe it was Kuhn who said there there were no revolutions in paradigms that that didn't follow funerals. In other words, thinking thinking died with people. Paradigms died when people died. And what emerged after funerals was different thinking. And I just want to kind of pose that notion that one aspect of emergence is actually a cycle of death and rebirth. And what would it look like if we actually, back to Riel's point, if we wanted to, what was the term Riel used, the slavery, was we abolish it. Is there a process where we actually, in order for ideas emerge, we actually have a funeral or services to actually effectively let ideas die? Fantastic. I think both of the you know the introduction of the the idea of love and and the idea of of rituals uh, that can enable beginnings and endings those are wonderful things and I think that that's it but it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of confidence and it takes a lot of solidarity to do that uh, particularly when you know we can think of a, a funeral for our quest for immortality it would be would be a, a really a really big one a funeral for our desire to control the future 
and therefore a funeral in a sense for something as ubiquitous and powerful as bureaucracy. These are immense uh, monuments uh, that tower over us uh, and, that, and that we don't even see. So I would <laughs> be, be very keen to work with uh, the, the community to think about it. But I, I have to admit that it would be radical in a sense and, and, and very, very challenging and very frightening. And I guess in my own experience, and I think, you know, John, you know, we've definitely worked on this together, is that giving people a, a way to actually build the, the alternative first before we uh, bury the old is a gentler and, and maybe more nurturing gardening transitional strategy. Uh, but I don't know if it's if it's doable, and I'm not entirely sure if the shock of burying something and, and putting an end to something uh, isn't also very important, is one of the tactics that makes sense if you're trying to think about transitions. Um, again, I'll, I'll say it, I've, I've said it before, I have no idea what transformation is about because I can't tell if what I'm doing that I think is transitionally open or agile or fluid or adaptable will actually have durability and actually contribute to what might be eventually called transformation. So I don't even know if the funeral, you know, it really means the end of something or simply creates the basis for its resurrection, which, uh, by the way, is something that's been used historically uh, quite, it's a quite great effect. I think that, that this is uh, a really fascinating conversation, particularly if, if and, and, and if we think about love as unbelievable multidimensionality, and it, it, it's obviously emergent character uh, from the point of view of experience and the differences that we have in terms of experiencing that. We, we've got a fantastic terrain to work on here. I'll end with the point, the following point is that I think a lot of this is anchored in our ability to feel comfortable with difference and not just with repetition, to make the generic uh, general point. And that is the difference that involves the ending of things, the difference that involves trying to pay attention to something that's unfamiliar and novel, and in general, becoming better at difference. So here, I do have some sense of, of the, going back to the reading and, and writing out of language, that if we do become more able to understand anticipation, we can eventually become capable of integrating all of these elements in in, the, in our way of being. But obviously, that's just a scenario uh, and a fantasy. Yeah, and, and two things come to mind quickly, I, I think, as Peter, your your question pulls out and as Riel's already you know, hit on, you know, the problem is, is basically that things don't stay dead. In this age of sort of zombies, they keep coming back. And Zia had a great point. Actually, a, a dead body has, there's a reason we put them in the ground. Disease doesn't stop just because it's dead. It can it can contaminate and infect. And so it is precisely about finding a way to, I suppose we're back to the, the nuclear waste example in some ways, right? Disposal in a way that's healthy. But also, you know, funerals aren't for the dead at all. There's the kind of sanitary health aspect. The funerals are for the living. There is this process of of letting go. So, so I love I love the ritual aspect. And as this relates to love, I I think in the moments that maybe you know have occurred where folks have been a bit stuck, um, there has been an invocation of a more embodied relationality. So, you know, I have had opportunities to to say to folks, okay, tell me about your your kids, your nieces, your nephews. So, locating it within a, a love, let's say nexus or a love relationality, allowed for a little bit of a of a step outside of that other kind of pathology and i think that again from a practice perspective you know how do we 
allow ourselves to hold those raw spaces. And, and certainly I think about my own experience in training, you know, what enables us to feel comfortable or to feel confident to be able to enter those spaces. And, and also, again, from a practice perspective, what does that bring to us? I mean, because, and again, I mentioned others feeling that, that sort of empathy and that openness and, and what does that mean and look like? And that's not what I think a lot of the training enables, right? So how do, how do you enable that? And, and I think it's back to this community piece and being able to foster that as something that is about, you know, your own journey as a practitioner, but also as someone who, who wants to, you know, enable and allow that to be the emergent property to, to come out of those experiences. It occurs to me too that the honoring and commemorating of our dead paradigms, monsters, is also a part of bringing them into an ongoing, living, emergent tradition. And I was thinking about this in relation to, Rail, your point about how you would like to equip your children without dictating to them how they should continue, how they should go on. And I think part of that obligation to our children is also to leave them with or to bring them into a living tradition that gives them something that they feel that they want to take forward with their new and novel contributions, their new directions, their new interpretations. By honouring our monsters, it seems that it seems to me that we will equip those generations beyond us perhaps better for bringing that past into what emerges going forward in a way that perhaps addresses that point of John's about the the potential zombie nature of of our past monsters. Josh, I think you're you're right. You know, Bio Komalefe, who wrote uh, The Wild Beyond Our Fences, Bio talks a lot about these kinds of issues and the monsters and how they how we relate to them and also how honoring is not necessarily perpetuating. <laughs> and so I think I, I really like the, the conversation because it's it's opening up. I mean, I'm I'm learning uh, a lot here about one of the things that preoccupies me all the time, which is building bridges. Uh, in other words, if I'm if I'm trying to cross boundaries, you know, let's say a, a you know a river or a chasm or whatever, if I'm trying to cross a boundary, uh, I want to build a bridge or a gateway or something like that. The work that I've tried to do on futures literacy and anticipatory systems, and the framework and stuff like that, and the book that came out in 2018 are really about trying to invite a world, and here I'll talk about the technocratic world, that's very, very uh, hesitant, well, I say I would say opposed, and also incapable of overcoming the divide between analysis and emotion, the, the old, somewhat cliche Cartesian split. But, and I, and I really hesitate because the bridge contaminates. In other words, the bridge carries with it contamination. And I don't understand exactly how that contamination will work because I don't understand, you know, can't know the future. I can't even see a lot of it. So in some senses, I wonder if, if we don't end up with the, the kind of injunction, kind of Star Trek of not contaminating other, other uh, sentient beings with a need to, to create a break. So I worry at times that when I talk about abolishing, it really does mean creating a break. And in some ways, 
not building bridges. So that means not thinking about transition other than to say that the enabling a real transition is to really cease and desist in some form of definitive way. And now I think that we can still sustain honor in that context because what we're saying essentially is that the only way to create a new opening is to create a new opening, <laughs> is, to, is to make that break happen. And just, just to finish on this point, bequeathing laws, uh, bequeathing rules, commandments, bequeathing statues and the shoulders of giants to stand on, bequeathing all of that looks generous, uh, looks wise, looks like the accumulation of knowledge and passing it along. But I think that there's probably a much more modest version of this for a species that just has a good life and finds meaning in life as a species that inhabits planet Earth. It does not go into space and it does not conquer the universe and it does not conquer each other. And it's not glorious in any way, shape or form. It's just good to be alive. And so we're really grappling with some really crucial issues about where we sit today and how as people exploring anticipatory systems, we understand what we're doing and how we uh, try and gift it to others. So I appreciate this conversation a great deal. Thank you. Yeah, and I think just just one last thing to add. I, I think that you know Rail's point about how do we how do we decenter the human and find better ways for talking and thinking about the kinds of different models and modes of how different species and organisms you know utilize anticipatory systems and and find ways of of thinking and being that don't continuously lapse us back into this this anthropocene which which arguably is meant to of course you know reflect on collection of activities that have produced what is a climate emergency but also invariably might choose to reinforce a certain mode of agency that isn't is in and of itself the problem and i suppose it was also that back to this broader question um that joss had brought up around sort of where does this issue lie? I, I always, I always struggled with this idea that it was Margaret Mead that said, you know, civilization occurred in the moment where we we discovered back to the back to the grave, the the healed femur, right? That someone had cared for another, had taken you know the time to be with them, you know, that had been applied, and so so locating healing within that space. And and I guess there's some value in thinking through that. But you know, lots of other organism organisms and species show a level of care and a level of love that that I think was that example was meant to be drawn out. So I think I increasingly becoming comfortable with the idea of decentering the human. And of course, you know, the aim, as we all know, is to also decenter certain modes of, of understanding and relying on forms of wisdom that have been existent for millennia across a variety of traditions such that we're able to, you know, hear that and enact that and embody that. And certainly I can't bring this back to practice, separate my own practice and my own awareness of that from the time spent in Hawaii and as a guest of in Native Hawaiian culture. And so to be able to to see how those different understandings infuse the kinds of practices that emerge, I think is also critical. And and to see the field really reveal itself and to be able to confront the, the legacies of coloniality that, that have perpetuated a variety of forms of anticipation for the future and the kind of pathologies around that, to see that being confronted 
in, in new ways. And of course, seeing that confronted previously and, and seeing this reemerge strongly now, I think is uh, it's long overdue and, and affirming and something that I think also speaks to this, these broader questions that are being teased out. Just quickly, John, to pick up on the practice side, because it's really we're designers and practitioners and facilitators and enablers in, in a lot of the work that we do with people in the field. You know, it's really rare for me, uh, it almost never happens, to, to talk about love, for instance, in the context of initiating or co-designing or engaging in a process. But of course, I when I think about it, I know that it's something that gets designed in because of the consideration. You know, you're, you're kind of the, the Margaret Mead caring for the other. Is that the consideration and caring for the other is something that gets built into the design, gets built into the process, gets built into the heuristics. And the same goes, I think, in insofar as we're beginning to really be able to grasp this for the terrible damage done in the past, the scars and the the, the pain that people carry with them, but also the possibility which we can all grasp to be capable of being free. In other words, finding ways to mutually support each other's liberation that is not about scale economies and making sure that everybody has enough calories, which is a mechanistic approach that leads to, you know, that's part and parcel of growth and progress, but really allows us to open up space where we can explore the unknown together. And I think that there's a really potentially powerful, and I hope something that's 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 being built up so for me a weak signal within our profession within our our practice that nourishes this non-totalizing non-equivalent way of negotiating meaning in other words we create spaces in which we can build together strange attractors that allow us to engage with something as powerful uh, and as meaningful as the future as you know a source of fear and hope but that really doesn't impose on the other, but invites and exchanges and shares in a way that really leaves you and your community and the relationships that you have as uninvaded <laughs> as possible. Again, thinking back to the Star Trek, you know, first, uh, the don't, don't interfere with a sentient uh, civilization. If we can get there, I think we're building up the seeds or elements of something that might grow. Of course, no idea whether it will, whether it will be better than anything that we could have imagined otherwise. But at least to me, those seem like components of what might be a different way of being. So another paradigm. So yeah, I, I really like this. Yeah, this idea of invitation has particular resonance for me. I'm thinking in a past life, my first career was in engineering, and so. I worked amongst and was one of those who took grand plans and brought them to fruition. I know what it feels like to to do that and to feel that that is a really important, valuable, worthy, worthwhile contribution to make. And a question arose for me in thinking about this conversation today, how is it that I can connect an appreciation from where I sit now for the exploration of anticipation for emergence with those who see their their greatest duty and gift to the world being to perpetuate 
the plans that they understand to be in that greater collective interest, improving the material conditions for, for those who they see as materially deprived and so forth. And I, I have a sense that the idea of or the, the gift of invitation is a way into this, a way to somehow dissolve the, the dilemma that this presents me with. In the first conversation, John, um, you made a couple of references to the infinite game, and I knew that Peter had been a, a, a particularly appreciated, I think, James Cass's book, Finite and Infinite Games, and I knew a bit about it, but I had never read it. So as a prompt from that first conversation, I got hold of a copy and I've re been reading it, and I just finished it uh, this evening before the conversation. There's a paragraph that I, I found in it that just this evening that I is remarkable in how it speaks to so much, so many of the themes that we've touched on here. And I wonder if I could just read it out to you. It's, it's in section 88. A garden is a place where growth is found. It has its own source of change. One does not bring change to a garden, but comes to a garden prepared for change and therefore prepared to change. It is possible to deal with growth only out of growth. True parents do not see to it that their children grow in particular way, in a particular way, according to a preferred pattern or scripted stages, but they see to it that they grow with their children. The character of one's parenting, if it is genuinely dramatic, must be constantly altered from within as the children change from within. So too with teaching or working with or loving each other. Spot on. Wow. Spot on. Yeah. On behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks to the three of you for taking some time out to explore this. Thank you, Josh, for the questions, and thanks to Riel and John to uh, agree to come back and uh, to reopen the wound, so to speak. I think when this goes out to the community, I'll talk it over with the other FuturePod people, but my, my thought will be to put an invitation if people want to come back and hear more or want to ask questions or want to make points. But I think this notion of an open invitation based on the conversation that we've had, I think, seems to be a, a useful next step. Count me in. I, I felt that just to, to thank all of you. I mean, I, I think we're moving, you know, we're moving the conversation forward. It advances through crucial issues and it adds value to the conversation, to, to what we understand or what we're, what we're, you know, what we can use. And, and I have to say, I mean, I'm grateful to, to, cause like I mentioned at the beginning, I, I've had to reflect and continue to reflect on these conversations and use them in my work. Uh, so this is definitely something that seems to me to be a work in progress. Yeah. I would love to keep the conversation going and absolutely so appreciative of the opportunity to connect and yeah, this is uh, this is the best funeral that I've been to. So uh, yeah, great, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, this this is the this is the essence of futures practice for me as I understand it. So yeah, count me in. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. 
This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.